Well, good morning. As I said, we're in Luke chapter 9. If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open it up. We're going to be at about verse nine, or chapter 9, verse 51. And today we're going to take a turn with Luke as he himself begins to really make a, a new direction in the gospel message, in his account of Jesus' ministry on earth. When we look at Luke's Gospel, if you were to stand back for a moment and look at the entirety of Luke's Gospel, and if you were, in fact, to take it and add it to Luke's other major contribution to the biblical record, that being the book of Acts, and think of them almost as a single work, I would argue that Luke knew where he was going when he wrote the Gospel, knowing he was going to move on to write about the Acts of the Apostles, and so he really wrote them essentially as a single work if not in the same moment, at least with the thought given toward where he was headed. In his gospel, Luke spends tremendous time, and we've seen this already, he spends tremendous time developing the events that lead up to Jesus' death. In particular, he really focuses on two issues, the battle between Jesus and the Pharisees, or the other religious leaders of his day, and secondly, on Jesus' preparation of the apostles for their eventual ministry following his death and resurrection. Those seem to be the two predominant themes going through the length of Luke's gospel. And he intertwines them with the events of Jesus' day and of his ministry on earth. And then in Acts, if you were to go look at the book of Acts and consider it now in light of what we learn in Luke, Luke begins to record the work of the disciples after the ascension, as we know. But those two themes, in some sense, continue on. He continues to show the battle now, though, between the men that followed after Christ, the apostles themselves, And the same religious leaders, the same men, actually, who did the bidding of the enemy. That battle doesn't end with Jesus' death. It simply transfers from Jesus to the apostles. We see, as well, the same preparation, the same uh, maturing of their faith, the same maturing of the church, for that matter. The natural progression of what Jesus established when he was teaching the disciples. It's a continual story, if you will, moving through the gospel and into the book of Acts. So as we end chapter 9 today, and we enter into chapter 10 next week, we're going to see in Luke how he begins to point the reader to that transition. As he writes even in these chapters, as Jesus now begins his, his trek toward Jerusalem, we're going to see, as Jesus goes that direction, how he's being prepared for his death, how he's being prepared to transition his authority to the gospel, to the apostles, and ultimately how the ministry of the apostles is going to begin in the book of Acts. Let's go to Luke today, 9.51, and watch that transition. Verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he, meaning Jesus, of course, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But when they did not receive him, because he was traveling toward Jerusalem, when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went on to another village. Up to this point in Luke's Gospel, you should have noticed that Jesus essentially was wandering in the desert, in the region of the Galilee. His initial ministry took him principally into the Galilee region, and he stayed there. He moved from town to town, and he often returned to some places he had been prior. We've already talked about that. And he would be teaching and performing miracles in all these places. 
And though his travels were not without a purpose, it was not truly random. There was a purpose in where he went and why. They certainly seemed to have no clear direction. It didn't seem as though he was really trying to go anywhere. He was simply visiting around in that region for a time. But now the Gospel of Luke takes a big turn. Christ is now singularly focused on a single direction. He's headed to Jerusalem. That's where he's going. That's his last destination. And everything from this point forward, from chapter 10 all the way to chapter 24 of Luke, is directed toward that goal. And if you want to put it on a timeline, we know Jesus' ministry as an adult after he was anointed by the Holy Spirit and baptized by John the Baptist. That period of time is roughly three years. And if you want to get a timeline... You've just covered at least two of the first three years in chapters 1 through 9. And in fact, some would argue that the last piece of this gospel from chapter 10 to chapter 24 may be considerably less than the year. So it's almost as though we've begun to slow time down in the course of the, of the gospel and really examine in detail what happens as Jesus moves toward Jerusalem. That's where we're headed now at the end. Of chapter 9. Now, chapter 9 at the very end here does present us with a bit of a transition. Because in these verses we just read, Luke says, when the days for his ascension were approaching, he begins to point us toward that event as the culminating event of his ministry. I really love the way he does this. I love the way he uses that phrase to make the transition. And the reason I like it so much is it places emphasis on Jesus squarely viewing his ascension as the purpose to go to Jerusalem, not merely his death. He was going to Jerusalem, not merely to die, but to ascend. And and to be sure, you have to die before you can ascend. So one comes with the other. There's no doubt about that. But he didn't come to earth as a man to die. He didn't come to earth as a man to die, period. He came to earth as a man to die so that he could be resurrected so that he could ascend, so that he could move to the right hand of the Father, having done the Father's will on earth. And by his ascension, he demonstrates he has the power of life over death. That's the purpose in the ascension. The purpose in the death is atonement. The purpose in the ascension is to prove his power over death. By displaying that power, he proves himself to be the one, the only one, in whom we should trust for our own life after death. You see the point? If you're living in this life believing there is another, well, you're you're halfway there. But now the question is, in whom do I trust to bring me to the next life, if you will, to bring me to the right place in the next life? We want to trust in the right source. You trust in the wrong one, and by the time you find out you're wrong, it's too late. So we want to trust in the right source for, for the eternal life we seek. Jesus, by his own resurrection, proved his life, proved himself, rather, to be trustworthy in all matters, particularly in matters of life over death. He proved himself to be who he said he was. Do some comparisons. Where's Buddha? In the grave, decomposing. Where's Muhammad? In the grave, decomposing. Where's Confucius? Same story. Where's every other supposed religious leader? that you want to name. Though they made claim after claim in their life, upon their death, their claims were shown to be the falsehoods that they were. By virtue of the fact that they could not even save their own life, resurrect themselves, in other words, so why trust them for the power to do that for you if they could not even manage it for themselves? 
But Jesus, on the other hand, proved himself trustworthy in this matter because he himself appeared to witnesses, hundreds of them, who recounted what they saw in the Gospel record as well as in the book of Acts, proving that he, in fact, did come back to life in the same physical form he had prior to death. This is not an apparition. This is not some image or vision. It was literally the same body brought back to life, proving that he has the power of life over death. Now, in all that we have before us through all of history, where do we place our trust for our own resurrection, for our own life after death? Well, I tell you, wouldn't you trust the one who's proven that he has the power to do what he claims to do? That's the record. That's the power of the record of the gospel. It is an eyewitness account. You might as well look at it as a newspaper account, only with the authority of God behind it, so that it can be trusted implicitly. In John 3.12, Christ says this, If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He testified to himself even before his death that he would be the only one who would do that. In John 6.62, he says this, What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Which is an interesting phrase because one of the criticisms I've heard of movies like The Passion of Christ that Mel Gibson did a few years ago was that it placed all the emphasis on his death to the detriment of any real emphasis on the ascension. There was some brief moment at the end of the movie where they actually show that part of the story, but clearly the, mo- the movie is focused on the torture and death of Jesus, not on his ascension. Now, as I said, you can't have one without the other, but if he had simply been tortured and died, he'd be no different than any other executed criminal. What made his death on the cross significant for you and I today is that the story didn't end there, that after his death, he was resurrected. His death is significant because he died sinlessly, and by doing so, he could atone for our sin, yes. But his resurrection meant we can now put our trust in his atonement for our own life after death because he has proven to have that power, to not, have, to not be subjected to death, but rather to have power over it. And so when he says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, he demonstrates that he came to earth for one principal purpose, to go back. He came down to go back. And in his time on earth, it was a preparation for that death, an opportunity to teach who he was so that we would know to trust in him. Ultimately, though, as Luke starts it, he is headed to Jerusalem for his ascension. And so Luke says Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. He sends messengers ahead of him. Now, we want to talk a little bit about what he's doing here and why. What he's doing essentially when he says he sent messengers ahead of him is the same thing you and I do today. It really is exactly the same thing you do and I do. When you set out on a road trip, driving cross-country, what do you do? If it's going to be more than one day's trip, if you're like me, unless you're just really adventurous, you you call ahead. You phone the the hotel where you think you're going to stay, and you you say, do you have a room? Do you have reservations? Can Can I reserve a room? And either they do or they don't. You keep calling until you find one. Once you find one, you say, all right, I'll be there on such and such a time. Make sure the room is available when I get there. I'll need two beds. I'll need whatever. And you make a reservation. That's what Jesus is doing. He doesn't have a phone. He doesn't have the internet. So he uses messengers. It's exactly the same purpose. He's sending men ahead to ensure that as they journey towards Jerusalem, there's a place to stay in in the towns that they might travel to. And remember, when you're walking, you don't have the opportunity to walk into a town, find out that there's no room at the inn, and say, well, let's just go to the next town. It might be another half-day walk. They have to know where they're going before they get there to be sure they'll have a place to stay. It's just that simple. And 
these messengers, they're not the disciples. We'll see that more clearly when you look at the text with me in a moment. They're not the disciples necessarily. There are other men who apparently were in the crowd or were around Jesus, and Jesus sends them ahead to do this reservation process, if you will. And they happen to pick a town along Jesus' route, a Samaritan town. We don't have the name of the village, but it's in Samaria. And they seek lodging in Samaria. Now, we're going to spend a moment here to understand the significance of Samaria and Samaritans because it explains the situation clearly. Let's go ahead and move to a map I have for you here. We use maps occasionally. We're going to do one here today. If you look here, here's Jerusalem. And here's Nazareth. Up there, there's the Capernaum. This is Bethesda. Remember, city of fish. There's the Sea of Galilee. Cana, where he turns water into wine. And look at the roads. These are all the roads, ancient roads of that day. They had some different ways to get down to Jerusalem. But no matter which way you go, you're going to pass through Samaria. So there's a town in Samaria, somewhere in that region, that they picked to see if there's room. Samaritans were Semitic people. Semitic means descended from the Jewish line, from Abraham specifically, and more particularly going back to the time of Noah, to Noah's sons. And the Semitic line descended from Shem. Shem settled in what we consider today the Middle East. And Shem, from the line of Shem, you eventually get to Abraham, you get to Semitic people. They were Semitic, they descended from Abraham, they were called Jews at one point. But when the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by the Assyrians in, in 722 B.C., there was a small group of the Jewish population at that time who were left in the land, who escaped the Assyrians and basically were not captured and were renegades. And they were able to maintain a presence in this land rather than being taken captive and returned to Assyria like, the, like most of the northern kingdom was. And in this small band of Jews, you eventually had a group that began to intermarry with the Assyrians who had been sent down to try to take over this land. After the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom and took captive most of the people, they would send their own people down into the land to try to populate it and take it over. And this small group of leftover Jews began to intermarry with the Assyrians who came down. When the descendants of the Jews that had been taken into captivity eventually returned to the land and found this band of ex-Jews, if you will, who had now been mixed blood with the Assyrians, the Jews who had been taken captive refused to recognize this group as true Jew. Because they had intermarried with Assyrians, because they had essentially become a part of this Gentile people and not remain pure Jew, The Jews that had remained that way in captivity refused to see them as Jew any longer and completely rejected them. And this band of Jews that had been rejected settled in this region of Samaria and therefore became known as Samaritans. So Samaritans were, from the standpoint of a Jew, no different than any other Gentile. But in some sense they were worse because they used to be Jew and they kind of were traitors. They turned their back on their Jewishness. This set up a very bitter and very violent rivalry between these two groups. And both, in fact, made claim to be the true descendants and thought the other was the one that was wrong. Eventually, the Samaritans got to the point of rejecting virtually all things Jewish. They rejected all writings of the Jewish prophets other than the Torah itself. They accepted the first five books of the, of the Bible from Moses, but everything else they rejected. They rejected all the prophets, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the sayings of, of Solomon, etc. 
They rejected Jerusalem particularly as being the seat of Jewish authority. They set up their own temple, if you will, in the town of Samaria, which is right here, and established that as the seat of Jewishness from their perspective. So, consequently, the Jews and the Samaritans would have nothing to do with each other. They treated each other as if they were Gentile, and therefore they would be unworthy to even be spoken to. You know the story of the, of the Good Samaritan, probably, right? And the very fact that a Jew would cross over to the other side of, of, a, of a ravine, basically, so they wouldn't have to even walk past a Samaritan on the same side of the, of the road is an example of how far they went out of their way to avoid each other. That's how much disdain they had. So when these messengers are sent to the Samaritan town to look for a place to stay, what they ended up doing, apparently, was telling the room, the, the innkeeper, rather, that Jesus wanted a room to stay because he was headed to Jerusalem, probably to worship at the temple. As soon as the Samaritan innkeeper heard that the pe- person who was seeking uh, accommodation was headed on to Jerusalem, he was instantly going to say, well, he can't stay here. Because if he thinks Jerusalem is the place to go worship, then he's clearly not one of us and we don't want to have anything to do with him. And so they had rejected Jesus on that basis. And then you hear the disciples. The disciples react angrily to having heard the messengers return and say, well, we tried to get you this room, but it didn't work out. They won't give you a room because you're going to Jerusalem. And they ask Jesus if they should call down fire from heaven on the people in this town in, in Samaria. And I think we can sympathize, at least in some sense, with the disciples, right? I mean, if you've ever been out on the road all day long and come upon the place you hope to stay and you think you have a reservation, you show up and they've lost your reservation or they won't give you a room, I can tell you there's moments in that circumstance where I would pretty much like to be able to call fire down on them as well. And if you travel a lot, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That would be a very useful thing to do, in fact, at certain times. All the men in the room who travel know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, But, of course, that's not the right reaction. And I have to even take a moment of thought to why they said what they said. Do do you think that they really think they could bring fire down from heaven? I mean, do you think they really believe they can do that, and so they're just asking Jesus for permission to use their secret power? Why do you think they even suggest that as a possibility? Well, first, they're making reference to 2 Kings Chapter 17, where Elijah calls fire down on heaven to destroy false prophets in his day. You may know the story. All the false prophets in his day under King Ahab, they all try to conjure up magic. And uh, the, the, I guess the, you'd say the test that Elijah presents to these men is to cause fire to come down from heaven. And when it's time for Elijah to do it, he soaks the wood three times with water before he finally brings fire down from heaven and consumes the the wood and demonstrates God's power. And as a result of him doing that, he then has all those false prophets killed because they couldn't repeat the same test. So the disciples are effectively comparing the people in this Samaritan town to the same false prophets of Elijah's day. And they're saying, hey, you want to do the same thing to them that Elijah did to those false prophets? Back to my question. Do you think they thought they had that power? I would say no. I would say these men didn't honestly believe they could do it. That's not the point of their question. They're rather asking for that power. It's not that they're asking for the right to use the power they already have. It's that they're asking, can I have that power? Can I please do this thing? And they're doing it, of course, out of a selfish hatred, out of a prejudicial thinking against the Samaritans. They wanted Jesus to give them that power so they could use it for their own purpose. And ultimately, their goal here was to destroy their enemy, and they're just looking for the opportunity. Can we do it now? 
Jesus rebukes them, we're told. The word he uses in the Greek, epitomai, epitomai, literally means a stern warning. You can kind of get a sense here in the moment that Jesus looked at them and said something that made them feel very uncomfortable, made them feel chastised. He says, he's not come to destroy lives, but to save them. Which again reminds the disciples that Jesus' first coming was not about judgment, it was about bringing the good news of the gospel, about bringing the kingdom and salvation to all who believe. And his judgment will await for his return, for his second coming. But the disciples' request of Jesus reveals, I think, an interesting point about where they stand on their path to spiritual maturity. It's like the old saying that a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. That's about where these guys are right now. They've got a little knowledge, and it's dangerous The disciples had just enough knowledge at this point in their ministry under Jesus to appreciate a few things. Here's what we can probably assume they knew at this point in their ministry. They knew Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. Peter's already declared that, we've seen. They knew that men must accept him or be condemned. They knew that from their own teaching on what the Messiah was all about. They knew God desired to work through men to display his power and to reveal his son. They'd already had a chance to do miracles like healings and demonic uh, exorcisms. So they're not a afraid to say, give me the power to call fire down from heaven. And they knew that in faith they could be used by God to do those miraculous things. And yet, they still lacked the big picture, didn't they? In this moment, when they're seeing men reject Jesus in the way that these Samaritans did, you know, they're full of understanding on what Jesus taught in the kingdom. They're, they're, they're clear on what righteousness is now. Jesus has taught them that on the purpose of his ministry to save all men by faith. Not just Jews, but all men. But apparently in this moment, they're still so unaware of what his ministry was truly about that they're willing to destroy somebody in a faraway town who they've never met because in a moment they rejected Jesus by not offering him a room. So while they exist in this in-between state, knowing some things but not really understanding the big picture, they're actually more dangerous in some ways than if they were still completely ignorant as unbelievers. More dangerous to Jesus' ministry, if you think about it. At least as an unbeliever, they wouldn't have cared at all. They wouldn't even be paying attention. Now, they're sort of halfway in, not all the way there, and they're willing to destroy people for the sake of the gospel message. They're prepared to destroy an entire city of people because Jesus can't get a room. That's, that's how far off they've gone. And I would even presume those people in that Samaritan town may never have even heard the gospel message yet. Not in its full extent. If you consider this for just a moment, you've made some similar similar mistakes from time to time. And in my experience, Christians are forever proving and reproving that this adage is true, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. In the Christian faith, a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. We gain, let's say, a limited understanding of Scripture. We uh, have some basic but not full appreciation of Christian doctrine. Um, We have some sense of God's purpose and his call upon our life, but we really haven't fully worked that out yet. And then for some reason we decide we've got the big picture, we stop learning, we stop listening, we stop following, and we get busy. And I don't just mean busy in the sense of life, I mean busy in the sense of we think we've got a plan that we're going to follow now in ministry as well as in our regular life, and we get distracted, or maybe we just get bored, or or maybe somewhere along the way we get offended, and so we just stop listening even to what we were listening to, and now we're an island unto ourselves in our lives. And I've seen this happen with so many people, it's even been a part of my life at times, that we now are the most dangerous person on earth to the gospel message. We call ourselves Christian, we, we have people identify us with the message, we go out and attempt to do something in our own power with a little knowledge, 
And we end up either completely turning off the unbeliever in some cases or taking believers and completely messing with their heads and leaving them with a completely warped understanding of what Christianity is, is about. And I don't say we do this intentionally, of course, hopefully never. But if we're truly desiring not to do that, it begs the question, how do I move beyond that dangerous stage that I would argue every Christian goes through at some point, that the disciples are going through right here and now? They've, just in the way they said that phrase, don't you get the impression they think they've kind of got it down? Hey, Jesus, they're not accepting you. How about we go down there and take them out? It's an arrogance that comes with a, a, a belief that somehow I've got my act together and I know this whole gig now. I've kind of got the pieces figured out and I'm ready to go put it into action. It has that sense to it, doesn't it? They're so excited, I would argue, by the prospect of ministry under Jesus, they're just ready to jump forward without the whole story. Now consider this about the apostles as you think about yourself for just a moment. Consider this. They lived all day, every day, 24-7, with Jesus in the flesh for nearly three years. They saw his miracles firsthand. They heard his teaching from his very mouth. They had the chance to ask questions to him in person. Wouldn't you love to do that? They had an intimate knowledge of the Old Testament coming out of a Jewish culture that few of us probably will ever have. And after all that time and all that experience firsthand with Jesus, they still lack so much understanding and self-control that they're actually a danger to Christ's mission. He says they don't even know what kind of spirit they're speaking from. Meaning, they're speaking to do the work of the enemy when they harbor these thoughts. They're not just a little wrong. They're basically taking the role of Satan and they've had that much experience with Christ. In 955, Jesus turns to them and it says, and rebuked them and said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. So now I ask us to consider ourselves here. Do we think we've got enough training yet to be effective, to get out of the dangerous mode? I wonder. I mean, I, I, I looked at this as I studied and I thought to myself, I'm probably 99% dangerous. When I consider the relative time I've had in Jesus' presence, the relative opportunity I've had compared to the apostles to learn things, and yet they're this far off the mark after having had probably far more experience in his presence learning from him than I'll ever have in this life. And so the questions answer themselves. Have we studied enough? How could we? Do we know his heart well enough? How could we? Do we know God's will well enough? I don't know that we can. Have we spent enough time with the Father through his word and, and in prayer to be useful to him? Or are we merely still dangerous? Well, the, the encouraging thing here is this. Though they were this dangerous, he was still working with them. Though they were this unsure of what they're supposed to be doing, he was still wanting to work with them and work through them. And I have to believe the same is true for us. Despite us, he works through us. In spite of what we don't know, he works through us. But that doesn't relieve us from the obligation to do everything we can to be prepared for that use, for those times when he wants to work through us. We're going to make the same dumb mistakes the disciples made. I don't know how we can avoid them. We're going to be rash. We're going to be impulsive at times. We're going to get too excited and want to do things the wrong way. And we're even going to get to the point of serving the enemy rather than God on occasion, unknowingly. But he's not going to give up on us. And as long as we don't think that we can rest in what we've already done or in what we already know, 
or in all the Bible studies we've been to and all the things we've done in our life that we think have prepared us, as long as we're willing to continue the training process, I have no doubt he's willing to continue to work through us. But I do believe at some point, if our pride sets us in a position where we think we've got it down, I do believe for the sake of saving us from ourselves, he may withhold ministerial opportunity from us just for the sake of protecting the flock. We would have otherwise burned up, so to speak, by calling down fire from heaven, as the disciples wanted to do. It's a good thing to remember. Let's look at Luke 9:57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. And he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Also, another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. So as Luke tells it, Jesus continues his journey now toward Jerusalem, and he strings together, Luke strings together, a number of what were probably isolated exchanges between Jesus and people he met along the way. The reason I say that is, it's unlikely that all these encounters happen at exactly the same time, or even really along this same journey, because Mark and Matthew... Both record these same exchanges at different places and in different times. So, although it might have all happened at one time, it's just as likely, if not more likely, that they're probably being strung together by Luke here and now to make a point, to make an association. And it's obvious that they all have a very common theme, isn't it? They all have a very similar uh, point that they're making. And that's probably why he used them together at this point. Let's look at what's going on in each situation and try to understand why Luke puts them here. Someone tells Jesus... Uh, as Jesus walks along, I will follow you wherever you go, Jesus. Do you, you get the feeling Jesus probably heard this a lot? I do. I have a sense that he probably got this kind of stuff all the time. He probably got people giving him all kinds of bizarre offers, all kinds of bizarre requests, all kinds of pledges of support, or pledges of loyalty, promises, whatever. He must have heard everything you could hear and be, you know, because of his position, because of his prominence, because of his fame. And when the people came along like this guy did and they pledged their loyalty to Jesus in some way, Jesus would probably have done what he did here in a common pattern. This may have been sort of representative of what he would say when someone said this kind of a thing to him. Jesus gives this very interesting response. He says, even the animals of this world have the benefit of a home. Even animals have a place to retreat at the end of a day, a place to, to, to rest in this, essentially. Even animals have that. But Jesus, he said, never experienced that kind of resting place in this life. Certainly not from the point his ministry started. He never had that sense of, oop, day's done, time to go home. Got to rest up for the weekend. Got a busy day next, you know, busy week next week. There was no sense of recovery, of, of, of resting, of coming back to a place of solitude or rest. He was constantly wandering while he was here in his time of ministry as an adult. And he says, anyone who would desire to call himself my disciple, in other words, a follower of me, someone who wants to be like me, had better expect a similar burden. Now look at the apostles, for example. 
from the minute Jesus called them into ministry, if you read the, the, the gospel and, and, of course, the, the Acts of the Apostles, even many of the letters, as you hear what Paul says about himself, you don't get a sense these folks had, quote, normal life, do you? You don't get a sense that they were kind of going through the normal seven-day routine. They kind of had their regular thing going on. They went to temple once a week. They had the prayer meetings on the weekend. You know, they, just, they, they didn't have that sense at all, particularly Paul. Paul was nonstop wandering between the beatings, of course. You know, he took the beatings, then he would wander, then take some more beatings. It was a constant just life on the road, life on the lamb in some sense. He was always trying to escape persecution as well. You don't hear a lot about their wives and children, do you? Some may have had them, some didn't. We don't, in all cases, know. But that's not a big part of their life, is it? You don't hear about them saving for retirement. You don't hear about them worrying about whether the kids made it to soccer on time in a given week. Their lives are not defined by the kinds of things that define what normal people would do in their day or in our day, right? And on top of that, they were persecuted. They were men who were hated by many, imprisoned. Ultimately, most of them were martyred. Their lives were cut short, if you will, by what we would consider earthly standards. And they did all of these things because they couldn't care less about this world. Because there was nothing in this world that offered them anything that could, they would matter one bit to them. Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 11.13. You know, the chapter of Hebrews, chapter 11, the hall of faith, we call it, because it, it goes through this long list of these Old Testament men and women who were called faithful in their day. And as you look through Hebrews chapter 11, at one point at verse 13, the writer says this, all these died, meaning all these faithful men and women, all these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from where they went out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. The writer's point here is that one of the things, if not the thing, that motivated all these men and women of faith to go and do what they did was the fact that they were working toward their heavenly inheritance. There was a place in heaven, a city prepared for them. Not anything on earth could hold any interest or appeal or motivation for them. It's all going to burn up. Why invest in it, in any sense of the word? except to invest in things that are eternal, invest in the kingdom, bringing others to understand the gospel and bring them with you into the heavenly realm. That is the only thing that once you die will have any merit. The work you did in the will of God while you had the opportunity. And Jesus' point to this man, of course, is that if you want to follow me, you better be prepared for what that means. You need to be prepared for a life that completely forsakes what the world counts as important. Normal life, in other words. And his next two comments, Luke takes that comment and that basic thought, and now he builds it with two more dramatic examples. They get increasingly dramatic. Because if you left it with just the first one, I think you and I would be tempted to say, okay, yeah, you're right. You've got to be prepared for some sacrifice if we're going to be in ministry. You've got to be prepared for giving up some things in this world if I'm going to be a Christian. No more getting drunk on Saturday night. Right? No, those are the kind of things we typically start with, right? No more swearing anymore at my mother. You'd have these little rules you set up for yourself that define your before from your after. And if I'm going to be a Christian, this is now the kind of life I'm going to lead. These are all the holy things I'm going to now do to show that I've come to a different awareness in my life. That's a starting point. I won't say that's not valuable, but 
If that's the extent, the full extent of what we think it means, look at the next two examples. The next comment, the man says, I'll follow you, but give me a chance to wait until my father dies. Now, you might have assumed that the man and his father had already died. And the comment is, hey, dad just died. Got to bury him. Hold just a second. I'll be right back. No. In Jewish culture, and it's still this way today in the Middle East, it's a str- there's a strong cultural expectation that upon death, a body is buried within 24 hours. That, that is in part due to the culture, and that has been derived from the environment. You know, it's a hot climate. Bodies decompose quickly. So there had long been, and still is today, an expectation, particularly in the Muslim culture now, that you don't leave a body unburied for more than 24 hours. So if the man's body had already died, the father had already died, this conversation really wouldn't even be an issue. I mean, you could bury the guy and get on the road and follow Jesus in no time at all. There wouldn't be a need to tell Jesus to wait. That's not the point of the comment. The point of the comment, my dad is old, he's approaching death, I'm the son, I have an obligation to him, I need to be responsible for my father and honor him, I need to stay around the family and be here when my father dies so I can do the rightful thing that a son should do and be the one to bury my own father. You see the kind of thinking there, right? It's a cultural expectation of the son's responsibility is to stay there until the father dies. And You see that actually if you look at the Old Testament record in Genesis quite often. What did Abraham do on his walk into the promised land? He stops at Haran until his father dies, and then once his father had died, then he moved on and took the rest of the trip. There was a sense that I can't, and his father probably couldn't move any further because he was getting too old, so Abraham hung around, waited until his father died, then moved on. That's a cultural expectation. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, you might even say, well, that's honoring my father and mother, right? I should be expected to get the opportunity to stick around and wait for dear old dad to pass away before I'm expected to go into ministry like this. Before you would expect me to just drop all that and walk into a life of discipleship. What does Jesus say to this man? Jesus says, allow the dead to bury their own dead. Pretty harsh comment, isn't it? The dead here, of course, refers to spiritually dead. Unbelievers. Allow the unbelievers, and presumably this would imply that uh, the man's father was an unbeliever. Allow the unbelievers to bury their own kind. You don't have any business with that. Allow, in other words, allow them to go on with what they think normal life is. The rituals, the routine, the obligations. Let all of that continue. If that's what they think is important, then let them have that life. You know better. If you've been awakened spiritually to the truth, you know that what's in this world now that we call normal is not, in fact, normal. It's a, it's, it's a cloud over the eyes of the unbeliever that they think what they see in this world is normal. And it's not. It's passing away. It's only temporary. And if you're spiritually awakened to eternity, then your eyes ought to be focused on eternity. Not on the here and now that we know is temporary. Though you as an unbeliever saw this world as all there is, now you've been awoken to the fact that it's, it's nothing. That what matters is eternal. So if your time and your attention remains focused on the temporal, though you know better, you're not worthy to be his disciple, he says. If you've seen that, if your eyes have been opened and yet you still want to live the, quote, normal life that puts all its investment in this world, then you really haven't gotten the message. You've got to be willing to leave that behind. Even the traditions that you hold so dearly, like burying family members. Now, keep in mind, Jesus didn't say, abuse your father, disrespect your father, ignore your father. He said, 
Don't wait around to perform the ritual that the world thinks is important if that keeps you from doing what I call you to do in your life. That's not saying disrespect your father. That's saying he'll be buried. Trust me, someone will do it. It doesn't have to be you. I've called you to something greater. And then the last one, and really the most dramatic, though it seems the simplest, the fact that it seems so reasonable is what makes it so dramatic. Look what the man says. I just want enough time to say goodbye to my family. Oh, come on now, Jesus. That really can't be unreasonable, can it? I mean, how long can that take? It's not like I'm going to delay you all that long. Just give me a moment. I'm just going to say goodbye. And what does Jesus say? He chastises the the person and he compares their request to a farmer who begins to plow the field. You've got to have your mind a picture of a a plow where typically it's being pulled by an ox and the guy behind it is kind of steering it as it pulls through the earth and churns up the earth. It's hard work. It's dirty work. It's not pleasant. But it takes some effort. You've got to get the machine out there. You've got to get the animal out there. You've got to set up for the plowing. You've got to kind of get get everything prepped to do the work. And you start into the work and then effectively the farmer kind of looks longingly back at the farmhouse where life's a little easier and a little more pleasant. And uh, in the looking back, he's implying, you know, maybe I'm not really cut out for this today. Maybe I'm just going to stop and go back to the farmhouse. It's that sense. And Jesus says, anyone who truly understands the gospel, having heard it, and responds to a call of faith, but then looks back longingly on the life they had before faith, is not a disciple. If you had the experience as I did to come to faith as an adult, then you should have the same opportunity that I have to look back and know the difference. I can see a life I led before I believed in the gospel, and I can look at what I do now, and what I think now, and how I react to the world now. I don't want, I don't want anything to do with the guy I used to be. I, I frankly don't like who I am in most days now, but I certainly don't want to be you know, the guy before I knew faith. None of the things I thought were important there are important. None of the ways I wanted to spend my time, none of the things I glorified in were worth my time and and most of them were completely ungodly. And yet, if now knowing the difference and standing in this moment, if I often had those days where I think back and wouldn't it be nice to just go back and do all those things? If that's the kind of attitude, if I can actually entertain that thought for even a moment, I'm not a disciple of Christ. I may claim to be, but if you're truly... Changed. If the old man has truly been put in the grave and you have become a new creation, it's not just that you won't want those things, you won't even understand how you ever wanted them. And if, if what I'm saying doesn't make sense, if you don't have that same kind of view of the before and the after, and again, it's, it's different, I think, for those who came to faith as a young child. They, they simply may never have a memory of what it was like before that, and that's understandable. But if, if you can see it as an adult and you don't feel that way, then then friends, take a moment to consider what you think it means to be a disciple, just for a moment, because it may be an indication for somebody that that change hasn't really happened. I've changed things I do, I've changed things I say, I've changed the way I spend my time, but inwardly I'm the same person, because I still have a tendency to look back at that farmhouse, so to speak, and wish I could go back there. If it holds any temptation at all for you, it's a sign that you're not a a disciple, according to what Jesus says. And in light of where he's headed, thinking about where he's walking to and why he's going, to the cross, in other words, it makes perfect sense for Luke to begin to put these statements together on this trip. To begin to make the point more and more and more sternly that if you're going down the road with me, you need to understand what it means. Because it's not 
It's not a joy trip. It's, it's playing for keeps. He was willing, here Jesus is, he's willing to place his very life on the line to allow himself to be tortured and then killed for the sake of the kingdom. And to truly follow him, he says, requires a willingness to forsake the comforts of this world, to forsake the cares of this world, to forsake the desire for this world, as those three examples show, and to look only forward. Forward not to something in this day, forward to something in eternity. Forward to a life in the kingdom. That is the true transformation of the Holy Spirit. Of putting away the old, of putting our old self to death on the cross with Christ and having been born again by the Spirit into a new creation, one that can't even understand how the old one ever lived. That is what a Christian lives with. Now, living out that difference is a matter of contending with the flesh because you still got a part of you that remembers the old and wants it. But the Spirit knows the difference. So I, I want to end as we move to the communion moment. I want to end just with a challenge. And the challenge is this. As a church, as the body of Christ, are, are we in this work together? And I don't mean in what we do here. I mean in our Christian walk. Are we all walking together? Have we all understood the call of faith? Have we understood it the way the Bible teaches it? Do we all share the same single-mindedness for where our true home lies? Do we all understand the sacrifices that God may ask us to make in our walk of faith? And are we prepared to accept them? And are we putting aside the cares of this world? I'm not saying sell all your possessions and live homelessly on the street corner in order to prove you're a Christian. If he calls us to do that, we ought to be prepared. But I doubt he does in most cases today. He seems to work differently today in this culture for our sake. But we should have no more attachment to those things than necessary. Are we trying to live with one foot in each of these worlds? That's really the challenge. That's what that man at the plow was asking for. That's what the man who wanted to bury his father was asking for. Let me follow you, but let me hold on to what I also have here. And Jesus says it's all or nothing. He says that if his answers to those questions cause us to wonder about our own commitment to him, then now's the time to stop wondering, I would argue. And now's the time to maybe stop fooling ourselves and to actually make the commitment. In the spiritual sense, make a commitment that says... We've made up our mind for sure. We, we, we've put our shoulders to the plow and we're pressing forward and we couldn't care less about what was behind us spiritually in our lives. Consider in your own heart where your call in life is with respect to Jesus' challenge. If you're confident that you've made that change, God has changed your heart and you now know the truth of the gospel and you are a believer, then pray with me for those who may not. And if you are questioning in your own mind even now, There's an easy way to address that issue as we prepare to distribute the elements in the time of prayer that we'll make available during the communion. I would would ask you to give a moment of consideration to what it meant when Jesus told these men, you're my disciple if you're willing to turn your back on this world. But, But your opportunity to be a disciple is dependent on that willingness. It's not a work. It's not an act. It's a reflection of your heart. Let's go to prayer, and then as the elements are distributed, I'll take us through the sharing of the bread and the sharing of the wine. Father, thank you for your word, as always, Father. Thank you for the power that we see in Jesus' words through the gospel reading today, that he was moving so steadily toward his own death. How few of us, Father, would ever even take the first step along that journey out of fear, 
out of concern for protecting our lives in this world, though they'll end anyway. We, we struggle, Father, with the thought of letting it go early. None of us, Father, would have been worthy of the death in any case. But Jesus, Father, took it steadfastly with full knowledge of what was coming and his resoluteness, Father, to go through with it is a sign of his obedience and his love for us, his obedience to your word and his love for your creation. We thank you, Father, that we see that reminder in the gospel today. And as he walks down that road in the account, he meets men and women, probably not much different than ourselves, who are attracted by the message and believe in his words and consider following. But in that moment, something in our life causes us to pause and question whether it's really worth it. And Jesus says, that's the right question. Just make sure we have the right answer. And the answer is, it's worth it. You tell us, Father, that there is no one who can come to you but through your Son. And to not know you, Father, to not be able to stand in your presence, glorified by your Son and by his work, is to live a life, Father, of eternal suffering, a life, Father, of judgment, but a life we deserve based on our sin. Let us know the difference, Father. Let us understand the the decision that's before us, even now. And know, Father, that if we commit to a belief and a faith in you and your son's work on the cross, that it requires in our lives, Father, the reflection that we have in fact changed, that we would know it, that others would know it, we could be sure of it, not that we work it, as you tell us, but that we reflect it, that change having been given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. I pray for any in this room, Father, who now is... We enter into communion and prepare to celebrate the last meal that you had with your disciples. That should anyone be entering into this moment unsure, Father, of where they stand before you, give them by the power of the Holy Spirit a confidence, Father, to know that if they believe in your Son and trust in his work on the cross, knowing that there is no other way by which men may be saved, and yet in trusting are assured of that salvation, that they would be prepared to make that trust today, that they would be prepared, Father, to give their hearts over to you, that they would speak out of their own mind and heart in a quiet moment, Father, a word of prayer that confesses their sin, acknowledges their unrighteousness before you, and asks, Father, for the forgiveness that comes by the blood of Christ. And we pray for those who may be entering into that prayer with you right now. We ask your heart would be placed in their heart, your spirit, Father, in their spirit. And by the call that you placed on their lives, Father, they would look forward and not back. They would be worthy, by faith, to be your disciple. We pray for that now, Lord, we lift them up and ask, Father, for that, that work to be done, even now. And, Father, we go into communion with a full appreciation, Father, for the sincerity of that moment, of the earnestness of that moment, of the pain it must have been for Jesus to share that meal knowing what was about to happen. Let us bring the same earnestness here, Father, as we honor him by obeying his command to do as he did. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.